0: Okay, uh, let's open up our Bibles. We're going to take a bit of a journey through Scripture today. Uh, Go to John 3, and some of you who were at the seminar yesterday will say, hey, isn't that where we were at yesterday? Yes, it is where we were at yesterday, um, but um, we're not going to camp out there. If you were at the seminar yesterday, you heard some material from John 3. We're going to touch on that briefly, uh, but we're going to be taking a a bit of a journey uh, through Scripture to some... Maybe um, unknown places in Scripture today. I'd like to start with a question. How does God give life? How does God give life? Uh, We know that people need life. And as we come into the holiday season, you're going to be spending more time, probably than any other time of the year, with unsaved relatives. And um, this time of the year, Tends to bring a lot of stress onto people, especially if they're in a minority position with their faith. All of my family is Catholic, or all of my family is this, or all of my family is that, and I'm the only born again Christian in this you know, clan. Um, and and there there can there can build up in the Christian a lot of questions: What should I say? What should I do? More than anything, I found that Christians can be filled with a lot of frustration. Why won't they listen? Why why won't they hear me? You know? And to help us with sort of navigate those frustrations, and I, I think everybody in here would say, I, I can identify with that. Um, to help us sort of navigate those frustrations, let's ask the question, how would God give your relative life if he, did, if he wanted to? If God chose to save one of your relatives, how would he do that? Okay. Yes, yeah, Steve. Yes, that's right. Well, it was a rhetorical question, Steve, because I wanted to work to that inductively. But you just skipped right to my final point of five. So let's close in prayer. Um, <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Uh, no, let's let's work our way there. Let's work our way. Steve, Steve's good that way. He's thinking ahead. Um, let's start with this idea. Number one. Unsaved people are dead, like dead dead. Dead is a doornail dead. Let's quote a few verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Colossians 2.13 says the same thing. You were dead in your trespasses. Now, the word dead is the Greek word Necrus or necros. There's a we get a medical term from that. It's necrotic. And it means what it sounds like. Dead. Now what is the feature of a dead person? The thing about a dead person is that there's they're dead. They can't hear, they can't feel, they can't sense. You can tell that the corpse is there, but the spirit is gone. How many times have you heard at a viewing or a funeral, that wasn't grandma, or that wasn't so-and-so. The corpse was there, but the person had left. That's the idea, dead, helpless dead. Dead can't hear, dead can't see, dead can't feel. Dead can't respond, dead can't move. When we talk to unsaved people, they are dead. And there is nothing that you can do for a dead person. When the medical team comes upon a person who's recently died, they will do everything that they can to get the heart pumping again, get the lungs breathing again, but sometimes that process can't be reignited. And the physician says, there's nothing more we can do, and he declares the time of death, and that's it. There's nothing more that can be done. When you go to the funeral home and look over the casket, the organs have been taken out. That person is filled with formaldehyde. There's nothing you can do to bring that person back to life. There's no spell you can chant. There's no laying on of hands you can conduct. The person is dead. And that's the sobriety the Lord wants us to understand spiritual death with. In Genesis 2.17, God tells the man and the woman, in the day that you eat this fruit, you will die. Now, did they physically die? No. But something inside of them died. The ability, the the. Some, some innate ability that God had given them that they died to, and they passed that death on to all their descendants. For as in Adam, all die, And people apart from the regenerating work of Christ are dead. In Romans 6.23, we're told that the wages of sin is death. It's the same idea. It's not the same exact word, but it comes from that same root, necros, necru. It's death. What does this look like practically? Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? Prodigal means a spendthrift. Prodigal doesn't mean lost. Prodigal means he blew it all. He went and spent all his money, spent all his dad's money. He called in an early inheritance and went and spent it all on gambling and prostitutes and you name it. And, uh, Quick money left him quickly, and the people that were his fast friends left him fast when he had nothing to remain, nothing remaining. And when he returns with this sob story and repentance, his dad says, My son was what? Dead. And now he's alive. There was something about him before that he couldn't see, perceive, understand. He went on this path of self-destruction, and there was no telling him otherwise. There was no talking him out of it. He was dead to spiritual vitality. He was dead inside. And the Father had to just reckon him lost. Dead. This is what sin does to people. This is the... And when we think of our family members, we need to, our unsaved family members, we need to realize that they're dead. Now, I have a question for you. What good would it do to go to a funeral and criticize and gripe at a dead person for being dead, as opposed to being alive? Do you any of you feel resentment toward dead people for being dead? No. You wish they were alive. We can't get, we have to work hard not to get overly frustrated when dead people do dead people things, because they're dead. We pity them, we want them to have life, we plead with them, but ultimately they're dead. And our frustration only sends them further into their deadness. They, they don't comprehend why you're frustrated with them because they don't understand it. They don't see it. And you're asking them to see something impossible. This is why James says, let every man be quick to listen, slow to hear, and slow to wrath, because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So anger and frustration at dead people doing dead people things doesn't help the kingdom of God. So, what does? What does? Well, I had you turn to John 3. okay? I had you turn to John 3. Um, I need to turn there myself. Let's very quickly work through this passage, and then we're going to work, we're going to see something that Jesus said in the Old Testament. As I said, we're going to weave our way a little bit through Scripture here. Nicodemus is an old man, he's got a Greek name, it means victory of the people. He's a famous man, he's a teacher, and he's also a politician, well-respected. And what else is he? What else is he? Dead. That's right, he's dead. So he comes to Jesus, this dead man, and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. that's, That's good, right? He sees something special in Jesus. He sees something superlative. He comes to Jesus with a positive, with positive words. We know you're from God. Um, he sees so many good things about Jesus, but he's still dead. And you're going to see how deep the deadness goes in just a second. Jesus says to him, answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's pause there, and let me give you a literal translation of this passage. Okay, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In fact, I really don't like the translation again here, because it misses the point of what Nicodemus is about to say next. It's not Jesus who introduces the idea of two. It's Nicodemus who introduces the idea of two. Jesus says you have to be born of above. And later he qualifies it and says you have to be born of the spirit. Okay? So Jesus says unless one is born of above, he is constitutionally incapable of seeing the kingdom of God. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, unless you're born of above, you're dead and you can't get there. It it, it would be like asking a dead person to hop up out of the casket and walk. Can't happen. Nicodemus is baffled by this and said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Again, probably a more literal translation is, how can an old man be born? How can an old man be born? Can he enter, and here's the idea of second, a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's, it's Nicodemus who, int- who introduces into this conversation the idea of a second birth. Now, Jesus hears that, but he doesn't exactly address it. And I know this sounds like, uh, might sound like it's a bit of splitting hairs but these two are having a nuanced conversation and Jesus is trying to drive him to something very important. It takes Nicodemus' time to see this. He's not going to see it in this conversation. It's going to take God driving those words home again and again as Nicodemus goes home and thinks about it. Jesus is going to qualify. Jesus says, you have to be born from above. And Nicodemus says, what does that look like? I'm an old man. I can't enter my mother's womb again. How can you, how can you be born a second time? That doesn't make any sense. And Jesus qualifies. Let's read what Jesus says. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, again, This is I don't like this translation, you must be born of above. Don't marvel that I say you must be born of above. The wind blows where it goes, where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, what are we to conclude from what Jesus is saying? He's saying, if you're going to be born of above, if you're going to be born of heaven, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born above by what? By the Spirit. Now, we have here written the water and the Spirit, which seems very confusing at first. It's going to make much more sense in a second. I don't think it has anything to do with water baptism, though many have said that, and I'll show you why in a minute. There. there is um, in the Greek language um, what we call apposition. Okay, and it what it have you ever heard um, somebody say something like this? She is good and kind. Are they saying that she's two different things? Or are they saying she's really kind of one thing that's both good and kind? Okay. She's, she's really good in her kindness. Okay. She's very good and it demonstrates itself in her kindness. Right. They're, they're not saying separate those out in a hard and fast way. Look at her goodness and look at her kindness. And these two are to be cut in half. They're essentially one and the same thing. That's an apposition. Much more common in Greek. And he's saying water, born of water, which is the spirit, or of the spiritual water, of this idea of water and spirit together. They're two words representing the same concept. Okay. Now, let me show you where that is. Okay? So before we go there, let's review dead man comes to Jesus and says, you're from God. Great start, right? And Jesus says, you are so dead, you have to be born of above to get to the kingdom of God. And this is a Jewish man, a Jewish leader, who's given his life to the study of the word of God, and he doesn't qualify. And Nicodemus says, how can I be born a second time? And Jesus says, no, no, don't think to, think of, of above. You need to be born of above of the Spirit, of the water and the Spirit born from heaven so you can get to the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus goes on and he says, how can this be? And Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If we told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if we tell you heavenly things? And he's going to go on and try to unfold to Nicodemus that he's talking to him about heavenly realities. Being born of above, being born of heaven, being born of the Spirit. And Jesus is marveling that a teacher of the Jews couldn't put the dots together. Why would Jesus be so blunt with this eminent teacher? What is so obvious in the Old Testament that Nicodemus is, is totally missing? Well, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 36, and we'll see it. Okay? So go back in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet, and his most famous title, does anybody remember what he is most frequently called in the book of Ezekiel? He's most frequently called something. Son of... Man. <laughs> that also happens to be Jesus' favorite title in the gospel, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. And he's evoking Ezekiel. So, I had you turn to Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel chapter 36. If somebody has the Pew Bible, what page is that on? Here? Anybody turn in there in the Pew Bible? 724, if you need to find it, 724. This is very late in the Old Testament, very, very late. The northern kingdom has already been scooped up and transported away. The southern kingdom is about to be scooped up and transported away. Ezekiel isn't even writing from Israel. He's been deported. And in Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 16, he says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and their deeds. And in verses 16 through 22, Ezekiel is going to restate Israel's guilt. You're guilty. you filled the land with bloodshed. you filled the land with idolatry. You deserve to get kicked off the land. You deserve to be deported. You deserve to be overthrown. And I did it because you were profaning my great name. The nations around were saying, this is God's argument, the nations around were saying, How is it that God doesn't punish his people when his people break his own rules? God mustn't be there. If God is so unconcerned about his rule that his own people break it, God must not care. And God said, so for the sake of my name, for the sake of my justice, I had to judge you. But now that you've been judged, now you're profaning my name among the nations. Because now those same people are saying, how can your God be good given that he's judged you? And God says, so, for the sake of my name, I deported you, I judged you, and now, for the sake of my own name again, not for your sake, not for your righteousness, not for your goodness, but for mine, for my own purposes, for my sake, I'm going to restore you. And he begins to State that. Look at verses 22 and 3. Verses 22 and 3. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And then he makes a promise. In this verses 24 through 30, he begins to make promises. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. That's a physical promise. Now listen, in verse 25, this is why Jesus was so startled that Nicodemus did not know this concept. How can it be that a teacher in Israel doesn't understand this? Read verse 25 and forward. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I shall give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make an abundant and lay no famine upon you. God says, I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water when I pour the Spirit of the living God into you, I will cleanse you of your sins. When I put my Spirit within you, you will be given a new heart, and you'll be given a new mind, and I will do this for the sake of my great name. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you need this. You need the Spirit of God to rush into your heart from above and have the Spirit cleanse you with the spiritual cleansing that the water of the Spirit brings and give you that new heart and give you that new mind. And then I will be your God. And then you will be my people. You can call God your God all you want but if your heart is not made his from above he doesn't acknowledge it let me give an example did you know I I'm gonna pull back the curtain into my life I have a bit of a fantasy I want to move someday to Australia <laughs> Australia just sounds awesome. <laughs> it sounds real, like a really cool place to live. Some people are shaking their heads. Don't talk me out of it. I love Australia. <laughs> well, okay, so that, that's the catch. Australia would not let me move there right now because I couldn't do gainful employment. They, they only let people in who can do jobs that other Australians can't do. Um, they have Protestant preachers there in Australia. So I'm out of luck. I can't be an Australian. But in January, when it's freezing cold here, and I turn on the TV, and it's summer in Australia, I'm like, I want to go to Australia. <laughs> and Danielle comes in, and she says, you shouldn't watch that. That's not going to help you. Well, what if, what if I, I started telling everybody and the nation of Australia that I am Australian? And I just kept telling them over and over again, I'm Australian, I'm Australian. And I even convinced a bunch of you people that I'm Australian. I I mimicked an Australian accent. I started wearing green and gold, uh, going "Ozzy, Aussie, Aussie, oi, 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 all these things that they do. I grab my passport and I buy a plane ticket and I fly to Australia. Are they going to let me stay in the country? but I've been telling everybody that I'm Australian. Can I not self-declare that I'm Australian? No more than any of us can self-declare that we follow God. God has to naturalize us. God has to pour his spirit into our hearts. And when God declares it, then we are. If Australia said I could come and live in the country, then I could. But I can't, simply by my own declaration of it. Because I'm dead. Now, we haven't gotten, we're we're very close now to answering our first question. And our first question was this. How do my unsaved relatives get new life? How would that happen? Because right now, all we've said is they need new life, right? But how do you make a dead person get new life? Let's keep reading. Go to Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1. This is probably what Ezekiel's question was. Okay, Lord, how are you going to make dead people alive? How are you going to make this transformation? The hand of the Lord was upon me, verse 1, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, these were very many. Uh, behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Now Eze- Ezekiel has walked with the Lord enough to where he knows something is up. The Lord has a point to make. He doesn't know what's coming next. And he says, Lord, you know. Like, I have a feeling you're about to show me something, but I don't know what it is yet. And God tells him to do something unusual. He says, then he said to me, prophesy. Now, prophesy is a way we would call this word preach. Um, it, it's the idea, proclaim. Proclaim something over these bones. As I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. Behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. Now, Ezekiel was brought to this valley, this valley of dry bones. What do the dry bones symbolize? Lots and lots of dry bones, very dry human bones scattered all over the ground. What does that symbolize? Death, irreversible death. Death beyond funeral death. Decomposing, unable to identify the corpse death. There's no human hope. And God says, I want you to preach. What I want you to preach is the outcome. Okay. The message was the outcome of the message. Preach over these bones, you shall live. And, as you, and the word of God will enter you, O oh bones, and make you alive. And as he's preaching over these bones, come alive, O oh bones, the, Lord, the word of the Lord will make you alive, the outcome starts to happen. Notice something interesting here. Ezekiel felt a little bit silly doing it. My guess is at first he was like, You know, uh, young preachers, when we have our interns here, for example, I make them come to the church and set the pulpit up and practice right here. And they say, and they're practicing in this room by themselves, and they all tell me the same thing. I felt it too. It feels very funny to practice in an empty room by yourself. And I'm sure that's how Ezekiel felt. And so notice, as he starts preaching, he has to be encouraged to keep preaching. Okay? Okay. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews. And it says that, then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, Son of Man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied and commanded as he commanded me. So Ezekiel halted, and God is encouraging him, Keep preaching, keep preaching, keep going, don't stop preaching. And so Ezekiel has to keep preaching the outcome of this message. And as he's preaching, what happens? The dead come alive. The dead come alive. And that is the answer to our question. How do dead people come alive? They have the outcome of the gospel preached over them, over and again. Believe on the Lord and you will be saved. You will have peace with God. You will have no condemnation. You will have a relationship with God as you never had before. You can become a child of God. All the benefits of the New Testament gospel that would be the outcome if they got saved, That is the message that needs to be spoken over those dead people over and over and over and over again, and it's in the washing of that word over the top of those dead people that brings them to life. That is the vehicle that God chooses to use when he makes somebody born from above. Now, can God use other things? Well, sure. But this is the vehicle God most wants to use. So, let me give an example. John five twenty four. This is what Jesus said. Whoever hears my word, okay, they're dead, but they're hearing the word. It comes to them repeatedly, time and again. And then at some point they say, wait a minute, I think I believe that. When they believe, him who sent me suddenly, immediately, has eternal life. Listen to what Jesus says this. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. People hear the word of God, hear it over and over again, the Word changes them. And sometimes, as we see in Ezekiel 37, the bones come together and God um, demonstrates kind of a process. Then the sinews, then the muscle, then the flesh, and then they stand up. Okay? And sometimes you can see the life coming on somebody. It's uh, been several years now. There was a a, a lady um, coming to church here previously had been hostile suddenly i i saw a softening as she was sitting under preaching and i called her one night and i said hey just notice something's different she said the only way i can describe it is that god is drawing and shortly thereafter she got saved and it was that process of the word being preached over her and god using it she's hearing into life, and suddenly she has life. She has instantly passed from death to life. So, are you concerned for your unsaved relatives? Is that a frustration of yours? Well, can I encourage you that, number one, it's useless to get mad at a dead person. (laughs) They can't Hear you, they wouldn't understand your frustration and anger if you expressed it to them. What they need to hear over and again is for you to proclaim with joy the outcome of the gospel new life, relationship with Christ, peace with God, no condemnation, hope in heaven forevermore. All these outcomes of the gospel and by and by if the lord chooses that person can hear and believe and be brought from death to life okay so how does it happen somebody give me the 22nd version how does it happen how does your dead relative become spiritually alive somebody proclaiming the word over and over and over with joy. Don't yell at him. Yelling at him doesn't work. Okay, Maybe back in the 30s it worked. I don't know. These preachers would get mad and yell and grab people by the car. You need to get saved, young man! Different day and age. Okay? Um, all, all right. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Oh, uh, I'm going to say something after I wrap up this prayer. Bless us, and may our next service be a wonderful testimony of your praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name.